0: To catch you up, three weeks ago I started a series that I'm calling, interestingly enough, The Untouchables. And the reason I'm calling it that is that we're dealing with very sensitive topics that a lot of people don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole in the church. So the first teaching that we did was on abortion. And the second teaching that we did is on healthy sexuality. And uh, of course those were a whole lot of fun. Um, they kind of were, actually. I was being a little facetious there, but in in certain ways, they were a lot of fun. They did touch some sensitive points. And today, our teaching is called One Race, and it's on racism. And so we're going to discuss that today. So go ahead and be turning to our master text that you see on the screen there in Galatians chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I realize that racism may not be that uncomfortable of a subject depending on how you address it. And that's where maybe this teaching is considered an untouchable because I'm going to be addressing it in a way that you may not think that I would be. Uh, So again, that's why this is an untouchable, something that most people in the church don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole, at least not like this, like the way that I'm going to be addressing it this morning. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read our master text. And if you would, go ahead and stand up with me, if you will, and let's honor the reading of the Word of God. And this is in chapter 3 of Galatians, starting in verse 26. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor nor Greek, slave, nor free, male, nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, praise God. As we start this out, I do want to make mention of something that you saw at the tail end of that reading, and that's that there is no male and female. And I want to say just a brief word about that because obviously there is male and female, there are different genders, uh, but the Lord considers us all one on equal plane. Well, how does that relate to last week's teaching then, where we talked about um, a healthy marriage and gender roles? You know, that's a sensitive topic as well in uh, our pervasive uh, post Christian culture today. As well. How does that relate to gender roles? Well, folks, I want you to understand that, that the gender roles that God has ordained in the church and society and in the home have nothing to do with value. God values both men and women exactly the same. So, in that sense, there is no male and female, but there clearly are gender roles in the home and in society. And uh, also, obviously, in the church. So it has nothing to do with value, but it does have to do with order. Does that make sense? That's not my teaching this morning because we're talking about racism. But I did want to make that point about that male and female thing because that may have confused you when you read that in light of last week's teaching. So I want to start out by asking this question this morning. Where did all the races come from? You know, if there is no Jew or Greek, meaning that there's no longer a a Jewish nation or or a Gentile uh, uh, nations, that we're all one now, God considers us all one race if we're in Christ Jesus. So really that master text really, without me even elaborating on this teaching, that master text right there for the Christian should settle the matter of racism once and for all. We're all one race. We're on one race. But how did we come to the place today of having all these different skin colors and what have you and all the problems between the races? Well, let me start out by addressing this question. Where did all the quote-unquote races come from? And I use that in quotation marks simply because we are all one race. We're all descended from Adam and Eve. By the way, side note, before I read this, I'm just my mind... Sometimes just goes off on tangents that I didn't really have planned to say. But did you know that there was a scientific project, a um, really large scientific project, where they were trying to, to figure out what the origin of mankind was? These were not Christian scientists. They were studying the mitochondria, the little energy mechanism within the cells. These scientists determined that all of mankind was originated from one single mitochondria that came from a female, and they called her, get this, mitochondrial Eve. Now, these were secular, humanistic scientists. They didn't like that outcome, because that totally shattered that evolutionary mindset that they went into this project with. And so what they did is when they figured out that all of mankind was originated from the The mitochondria of one female with obviously one male. They didn't like that because that validated the biblical account. So they reworked all the the, the mathematics and what have you and and until they came out with a a different outcome. But the original outcome as was designed, uh, it proves that we originated from one man and one woman. Okay, with that in mind. Let's read Genesis 11 verses 8 and 9. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the face of the earth and they stopped building the city. Let's stop right there. Let me give you a little bit of background what that's talking about. So God had commanded the people, they had begun to to grow, the population from Adam and Eve had begun to grow. And so he commanded them to scatter over the face of the earth because they were all isolated in one part of the earth. And it was God's intention for the people to scatter over the face of the earth and dominate the earth. Well, they didn't want to do that. So they stayed in one localized place, and they began to build this city and this tower and this monument that, that basically was in honor of themselves. Look what we can do together. okay? So it, this tower and this city was a monument in honor of themselves. Well, they disobeyed the Lord, and he didn't like that. So he stepped in, and he said, okay, basically, if, if you're not going to scatter like I told you to, I'll scatter you. So that's what happened. So let's keep reading. In fact, let's start over. Verse 8. So the Lord scattered them from there over the face of the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, and from that place the Lord scattered them over the face of all the earth. So then, as a consequence of Babel, the people groups then became genetically isolated. Follow this because this is where the races came from. The people groups became genetically isolated. In other words, it's clear that when God confused the languages, um, he created several different dialects, of course, several different languages for all these different people groups that he scattered over the face of the earth. And he isolated people according to their traits and gave them their own language accordingly. Their genetic traits is what I'm talking about. And then the people who spoke the same language... They all got together, and they relocated. So people with a slightly lighter tones to their skin, even though we all came from one man and one woman, um, when they began to bear children, and they began to bear children, and they began to bear children, there was going to be slightly different variations in, in skin color. So all the people with lighter skin tones got together, And they were genetically isolated. They all spoke the same language. They were genetically isolated. And then they scattered to a different place. And then because all those people with the same genetic predilection for lighter tones in the skin, those genetics began to amplify. And their skin got lighter and lighter until we have today Caucasians. The very same thing happened with people with slightly darker tones to the skin, all of them got together, they were genetically isolated, so they were scattered to a different place, and as they reproduced throughout the generations over and over, their traits got stronger and stronger until we arrived with black skin. And the same would be true of different variations of skin. So the Asians, the Hispanics, etc., they all scattered over the face of the earth and eventually became what we see today because of that genetic isolation. Are you with me on that? So that's the very same way that breeding with animals is done, by the way. Okay? If you want a, a small dog... You, you breed traits that you see in certain dogs until they reproduce and amplify over and over and over until you get a really tiny dog. And likewise with larger dogs and the different characteristics that we see in dogs, it's still all the dog kind. They all still came from originally one small group of uh, the dog kind. And now we've got all these different genetic variations because of the breeding. That's how that's done. okay God did the same thing with humans. So then, with that in mind, I want to point out that our ultimate problem, folks, as the human race, one race, our ultimate problem really isn't race, but it's elitism. you know what elitism is? Thinking that you're elite, that you're better than somebody else. So elitism is the belief that you are better than someone else. And see, because of the influence of sin, we have this insatiable desire as fallen beings to isolate ourselves into classes and congratulate ourselves on our superior qualities while demeaning those who are supposedly below us. Did you catch that? That's a a human quality that is the influence of sin. See, the rich do this to the poor... Uh, there are religious groups like the wars in Ireland between the, the Protestants and the Catholics. So, we Catholics are better than you. No, we Protestants are better than you. And unthinkably, unfathomably, there's wars between religious groups. I just It blows me away. I mean, are, are you even reading the Bible? <laughs> that love should mark the people of God? And you get into religious wars? I mean, what planet are you from? You're not reading the same Bible I'm reading. And then, of course, there is elitism between races. I've even seen it among the black population. People with lighter skin that are still considered black um, are are actually judging their their elitist over the people with really dark skin. It happens even within the black population, for goodness sake. Um, And then, (laughs) interestingly enough, there's even elitism between people of the same color from different parts of the country. An example of that, back in the the 90s, and the early 2000s, I used to watch a lot of Indiana Pacers basketball. That's back when they had Reggie Miller and they were a very exciting team to watch. And I remember they would have these epic battles in the playoffs with a team called the New York Knicks. Uh, the Knicks were really great back then, too. It was really two great teams that just, they didn't even like each other. So they, they had these epic battles. And I remember the fans of the, uh, the New York Knicks would uh, hold up these signs that said, Knicks versus the Hicks. Yeah, so, so people from New York thought we people in Indiana were Hicks. So we even judge one another. Based upon the part of the country that we're from or our accents. Heck, when, when I was in high school, we who were raised in Columbus, as kids who were raised in Columbus, made fun of Edinburgh, which literally borders Columbus, for goodness sake. And of course, Edinburgh is the town in which I now live. So it's funny how life works that way, isn't it? <laughs> So, so, yeah, we all have this tendency toward elitism, and it's based on pride, of course, and that's the chief of all sins. So, I'm going to read a couple of scriptures to you along those lines. Galatians 3.6 says this, If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So, it's a warning against that pride. But then Romans 12, 16 takes it a step further and says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So, as Christians, we could say that we who live in Columbus should be willing to associate from those of us that live in Edinburgh. (laughs) Those in New York should be willing to associate with the Hicks from Indiana, right? And of course, that's really not our topic specifically, um, but we want to zone back in into the issue of racism here. And I want you to understand that racism goes both ways, ladies and gentlemen. It's not just blacks against whites. It it absolutely goes both ways. So I want to show you an example of that. I want to um, talk a little bit about Black Lives Matter today to make that point that racism is not a one-way street. It definitely goes both ways. So I have on the screen for you a quote out of an article called uh, Black Lives Matter Goes Full Marxist out of Crisis Magazine by Jason Morgan. And he reveals some things that a lot of people don't understand about Black Lives Matter. Because when we hear about Black Lives Matter, we in the church would agree with that sentiment. Yes, of course, Black Lives Matter. In fact, all lives matter. But if you start getting into what the organization Black Lives Matter is all about, it tells a different story. And I want to make you aware of that. So let's read from... uh, Jason Morgan's article, uh, Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization that uses race as a weapon against communities across the United States. Perhaps the most damning revelation was that the foundresses, two ladies, of Black Lives Matter, Patrice Coulours and Alicia Garza, were, quote, trained Marxists. This was not speculation, it came directly out of kalor 's mouth. In a 2015 interview, Kallor boasted that she and Garza were, quote, trained Marxists who were super versed in Marxist ideology. Uh, Marxism is not a political or economic theory. It is a formula for seizing control of resources and power. Now, I don't have time to... Uh, expound upon what Marxism is, but it's it's closely related to communism, but I want to read you a quote from uh, C. Thomas Bradley's article, Why Marxism, Evil Laid Bare, and he said this, nothing in the long span of human history comes close to the tyranny, terror, and mass genocide caused by Marxism in power, nothing, nothing. Now, again, the reason I bring that up is because Black Lives Matter, that's a sentiment that we all can get behind. That's a sentiment that we as Christians embrace. But it's a really good cover. That title, which was very strategically created and thought of, that's a really good cover for what's really going on underneath, which is pushing Marxism upon America. So I want you to be very, very careful and very discerning because uh, just because it says Black Lives Matter, you know, all that glitters isn't gold. And they're using race as a weapon. They're weaponizing the whole race thing. All right. So I want to ask this question as we move forward in this teaching. And, And I'm going to take this teaching about racism on both sides of the aisle both blacks against whites, and certainly whites against blacks, and how the church should discern these matters. So I want to ask the question this morning, do we really have a huge problem with hatred toward blacks in America? Do we really? Yeah, I would I would concur that that's not a huge problem. Are there pockets of it? Sure, but do we have a huge problem with it? No, because folks, some of the most revered and loved people in our society are black people. You know, even though black people make up only about 13 percent of our population in the U.S., 13 percent. Whenever I give that statistic, a lot of people think, "Wow, I didn't know that. I thought it was higher." No, it's only 13 percent of our population, and. and In spite of that fact, we still elected a black president not once but twice. So what does that mean? It means that Barack Obama got elected mostly by white people. So I don't think that we have as big of an issue with race, at least prior to Barack Obama, who I think re-stirred a lot of it up. But, you know, I'm a white guy, so I don't see a lot of what goes on in the inner city. You might say, well, you're an illegitimate person to be talking about this because you're white. I will say, however, that um, I had a black stepfather from the time I was 18 on, and uh, we loved him. Our family loved my stepfather. Um, In fact, he was one of the most well respected people in our community, Buddy King. Uh, He was a deputy sheriff. Here in Columbus, people loved him. I, he, it was one of, the most, one of the biggest turnouts for a funeral I'd ever seen. He was very loved in this mostly white town of Columbus, Indiana. Was, uh, one of the most loved people in this town was a black man, my stepfather, Buddy King, who was a, uh, a deputy sheriff. But we have a video that I want to play. Because I'm a white guy talking about racism, again, people could legitimately say maybe, well... You know, you've not experienced what I've experienced. You're white. You know, you're from an upper-middle-class socioeconomic status. You don't know what it's like on the other side of the tracks. Well, I disagree with that because I was once on the other side of the tracks, just not as a black person. But I want to give you the perspective of a couple of black people today via video. And the first one is by a black conservative commentator by the name of Larry Elder. Have you ever heard that name, Larry Elder? Really smart guy. The guys in the back are going to pull that up right now. It's about a six-minute clip, I think, and we're going to hear from Larry Elder on this, and then I'll come back up and give a little bit more uh, commentary.
1: America? President Barack Obama certainly thinks so.
0: He said that racism
1: is in our DNA. Really? If racism is in our DNA, doesn't that mean it's immutable, unchangeable? But America has changed, and dramatically so. In 1960... 60% 60% of Americans said they would never vote for a black president. Almost 50 years later, the black man who said racism is in America's DNA was elected president, and four years later, reelected. That's only the most obvious example of racial progress. There are many others. Take interracial marriage. As William H. Fry of the Brookings Institution wrote, sociologists have traditionally viewed multiracial marriage as a benchmark for the ultimate stage of assimilation of a particular group into society. Black-white marriages were still illegal in 16 states until 1967. And a 1958 Gallup poll found that only 4% of Americans approved of black-white marriages. Today, that number is 87%. In 1960, of all marriages by blacks, only 1.7% were black-white. Today, it's 12% and rising. Now, what about racial profiling and abuse of blacks by police? Doesn't that prove that racism remains a major problem? In the summer of 2014, Ferguson, Missouri, became ground zero for this accusation when a white policeman shot and killed an unarmed black teenager. While a Department of Justice investigation of the incident cleared the officer of any wrongdoing, it did accuse the city's police department of racial bias. But what was the Justice Department's report's most headline-grabbing stat? The gap between the percentage of blacks living in Ferguson, 67%, and the percentage of those stopped by police for traffic violations who are black, 85%, an 18-point discrepancy. Racism, right? Not so fast. Blacks comprise 25% of New York City, but account for 55% of those stopped for traffic offenses, a 30-point discrepancy far bigger than that of Ferguson. Why isn't the NYPD, a department that is now majority-minority, considered even more institutionally racist than the Ferguson PD? The answer is, you cannot have an honest discussion about police conduct without an honest discussion of black crime. Though blacks are 13% of the population, they commit 50% of the nation's homicides, and almost always the victim is another black person just as most white homicides are against other whites. In 2012, according to the Center for Disease Control, police killed 123 blacks, while, by the way, killing over twice that many whites. But that same year, blacks killed over 6,000 people, again, mostly other blacks. What about traffic stops? Unlike when responding to dispatch calls, police officers exercise more discretion when it comes to traffic stops. Therefore, racist cops can have a field day when it comes to traffic stops, right? Actually, no. The National Institute of Justice is the research agency of the Department of Justice. In 2013, the National Institute of Justice published a study called Race, Trust, and Police Legitimacy. Three out of four black drivers admitted that they were stopped by the police for a legitimate reason. Blacks, compared to whites, were on average more likely to commit speeding and other traffic offenses. The Institute wrote, Seatbelt usage is chronically lower among black drivers. If a law enforcement agency aggressively enforces seatbelt violations, police will stop more black drivers. The NIJ's conclusion? These numerical disparities result from differences in offending. In other words, not because of racism. Similarly, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration also found that blacks violate traffic laws at higher rates than whites, in every offense, whether it's driving without a license, not wearing a seatbelt, not using a child safety seat, or speeding. Is there still racism in America? Of course there is, but racism is not in America's DNA. Recent history and a lot of research and data prove it. As liberal Harvard sociologist Orlando Patterson said, America is now the least racist white majority society in the world, has a better record of legal protections of minorities than any other society, white or black, offers more opportunities to a greater number of black persons than any other society, including all of those of Africa. Patterson, by the way, is black. I'm Larry Elder for Prager University.
0: Yeah, so facts matter, guys. Don't you think facts matter? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to introduce you to a gentleman by the name of uh, Thomas Sowell. And uh, Thomas Sowell is a black American economist, social theorist, and senior fellow professor at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and you're looking on the screen there of a quote from one of his tweets on Twitter, and he says that equal opportunity policies are against racism. Equal opportunity policies are against racism. Affirmative action, however, is racism under new management. All right, so let me explain what he means. Um, It means that policies that incentivize people to work and to make something of themselves are anti-racist. But policies such as affirmative action are actually racist even though it claims to help the the black person or the minority. Affirmative action, says Thomas Sowell, is actually racist because it, it strips the incentive from people to compete for jobs based upon skill instead of the race card. You see, affirmative action refers to a set of policies and practices within a government or an organization like a a job uh, that that seeks to increase the representation of uh, particular groups based upon their gender, race, sexuality, uh, their creed or nationality in areas where uh, they may be underrepresented in areas like Education or employment. So it it seeks to kind of level the playing field, but that's not actually what it does. See, it actually favors minorities over white people and men. See, if two people are equally qualified for a job, a minority. Or a woman will get that job over the white person or a man in many organizations simply because in that organization, because of affirmative action, there's a quota to fill. And Thomas Sowell is suggesting here that that is the epitome of racism to suggest that black people cannot rise up and make something better of their lives without the help of white people. Oh, you poor black people, we know that you're not quite as intelligent as us whites, so we're going to help you by giving you affirmative action, but it actually cripples their incentive to make something better of themselves, says Thomas Sowell, and other people like him. And I agree with that. So, folks, listen, when you incentivize people to not work, and to be on welfare instead, this goes for blacks and whites, this goes across the board, this is not just a black thing. When you incentivize people to not work and be on welfare instead, to have babies out of wedlock because the government gives you handouts when you do so, (laughs) or to play the race card in their careers, then you have enslaved them all over again to a system that promises to take care of them, but in reality drains the motivation to make something better of themselves and keeps them voting for the same corrupt politicians who are their current taskmasters. See, that little stretch that I just said right there, that's why this is an untouchable things that people don't want to talk about in church because that's not politically correct. But political correctness is not our goal in this series. The integrity of the Word of God and how it applies to our lives in these social situations is our priority here. Now you're looking on the screen there at a movie poster called The Pursuit of Happiness by Will Smith. How many of you have seen that movie? Yeah. Yeah. A, a lot of you yeah if you haven't seen that movie it it would really behoove you to watch even though it's kind of difficult to watch because of what this man goes through he and his little boy <clears throat> they go through so much it's a true story by the way about a man who went through some just horrible things you would think that he would have Stopped and quit long before this, but he just kept pushing because he had a belief that he could make something better of himself in spite of the fact that there seemed to be so much against him. And he eventually became a millionaire in Wall Street. So the message of this movie is that anyone can lift themselves out of terrible circumstances in order to rise higher in life, no matter what your background and no matter what the color of your skin. Now, One of the arguments from the other side, by the way, against this mindset, against that position, is that people who live in the inner city and who live in poverty are disadvantaged and cannot rise higher in life compared to those who were raised in kind of a middle class or upper middle class family. And I won't deny that in some respects that's true. Uh, But in another respect, folks, listen to this. In another respect, you know, there are many people, both black and white, in the inner city who have overcome incredible odds to rise high in life and to overcome their circumstances and to become very, very successful. Ben Carson, the famous neurosurgeon, is one of those people. You know who Ben Carson is, right? He ran for, ran for president as, as well. Brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, groundbreaking work in in neurosurgery. But I do agree in one sense that inner city people, both black and white, are disadvantaged in some respects. I, I agree with that. But I also want to contend that according to the person and how they're wired and how they respond to the circumstances in life, according to the person, that background can actually serve them well in life because of how they handle and respond to that adversity. And that's true of all of us. See, it it makes them stronger than many people who are born into privilege. It makes them stronger. It gives them a stronger work ethic than some people who are born into privilege. But again, it's all in how the individual responds to that environment that makes the difference. And I'll admit that a large percentage of people who live in the inner city never make it out of there. But that's because of this dependency mindset that's been drilled into them for the last 70 years that makes them think that life owes them something without them working for it. That's that dependency mindset that's been drilled into them by certain political groups that keeps them stuck in that situation for the rest of their lives. So let, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. You're looking on the screen at uh, former President Lyndon B. Johnson, who was a Democrat. He actually took over for Kennedy after Kennedy was assassinated. And Lyndon B. Johnson was a terrible racist. He was a terrible racist. As a matter of fact, I want to read to you a statement that was recorded that he made to Senator Richard Lugar regarding the Civil Rights Act for the blacks of 1957. Listen to what he says and brace yourself. These Negroes, they're getting pretty uppity these days, and that's a problem for us since they've got something now that they never had before. Uh, Referring to the... um, civil rights act of 1957 which gave them more freedoms and i think that wasn't it that civil rights act that allowed them to vote i don't remember anyway it gave blacks more freedoms that's what he's referring to um, so let me start again uh, these negroes are getting pretty uppity these days and that's a problem for us since they've got something now that they never had before the political pull to back up their uppityness Now we've got to do something about this. We've got to give them a little something, just enough to quiet them down, not enough to make a difference. For if we don't move at all, then their allies, meaning the white people, the Republicans that are working for their liberation, that's who he's referring to. For if we don't move at all, then their allies will line up against us and there'll be no way of stopping them. And we'll lose the filibuster and there'll be no way of putting a break on all the wild legislation. It'll be reconstruction all over again. And so that's why he put legislation in place to give them a little something to make them think that the Democrats were actually on their side. But they were giving them just enough to cause them to not be so animate about their rights, to make them think that, wow, this is great, we've never had this before, and kept them voting Democrat for about, well, until the present day. As a matter of fact, Linda B. Johnson went on to say, get this, I'll have those inward voting Democrat for the next 200 years. He was an evil genius that was an ingenious plan, and it was evil. So a couple of points about this. First, it was always Democrat policies, folks. It was Democrat policies that were intentionally intended to keep black people in servitude to the government and strip them of their self-motivation. But ingeniously, they have somehow maneuvered and marketed themselves as the party of equal rights. When historically, Democrats have always voted against equal rights policies, while Republicans have always advocated for them. Secondly, yes, in America, we've had a history of racism, that's true. But Lyndon B. Johnson was president 70 years ago. So let's deal with the question, is there still racism in our culture today? And the answer to that is, of course there is, because there's still sin in the world. And as long as there's still sin, there will be things like elitism and racism and greed and violence. And we as Christians should seek to come to the defense of anyone that we see being wronged if we can. And that's the message of Proverbs 38, uh, 31 rather, verses 8 through 9, which says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And that's what many of the Christians in our government and, and mostly the Democrats, sorry, most of the, Re- the Republicans, Christians and Republicans were doing for uh, black people in our early history by speaking up for those who could not speak for themselves to defend them, to defend the rights of the poor and needy. So that's a very, very important scripture right there for us to live by and abide by. Are we defending the rights of the poor and needy? Are we speaking up for those who cannot speak for themselves? So that passage right there is actually consistent with Jesus' parable about the Good Samaritan. And you remember that story. In that story, a Jewish man was robbed and beaten and left in the road to die And soon thereafter, uh, two Jewish men on separate occasions came across his path and looked at him in the road and stepped over him and went their merry way because they didn't want to be bothered by it. But then something interesting happened. A Samaritan came across the man and uh, the Samaritan uh, at his own expense cared for the man and gave him lodging. Now I want to make a point here. And some of you may already know this, some may not. But Samaritans were a race that Jews hated. So this so-called good Samaritan was willing to take care of someone who he knew probably hated him. But he was nevertheless willing to give aid to someone who needed help. And we need to do the same thing. That was the whole message of the good Samaritan. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. And Jesus, by the way, went on to say that if we love only those who love us, what reward do we get for that? For even sinners do that. But when we love those who have mistreated us or who have committed acts of racism against us, that's when we get a reward. Now... If you truly want to look into the faces of true racists, look at the people from both sides of the aisle, white and black, who are perpetrating it in our nation today. So let's look, first of all, at Planned Parenthood. Now our first teaching in this series was on abortion, so I'm going to revisit that only for a moment, only to say that Planned Parenthood is the world's biggest abortion mill, and It was originally founded by a woman by the name of Margaret Sanger uh, to help control the reproduction of blacks and other so-called inferior people groups. Margaret Sanger was a horrible racist, um, and she was also a eugenist. You know what that means? A eugenist is someone that advocates the extermination of certain types of people Um, who she considered genetically inferior. She and others considered genetically inferior. That's a eugenist. Which is the same philosophy, by the way, that Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany operated on to exterminate people who were genetically inferior to them. That's Nazism. That's satanic is what that is. So I want to show you a picture. There is a picture right there of uh, Margaret Sanger lecturing in 1928 to the KKK. Yeah, and look at what it says here. Sanger gave a lecture on birth control to the women's auxiliary of the Ku Klux Klan in Silver Lake, New Jersey. She strongly spoke in favor of creating a... Quote, superior white race by sterilizing what she and others considered, quote, degenerate people. That's the history of Planned Parenthood. That's why they're in existence. And that's why there's a lot of Planned Parenthood clinics set up in inner cities to target black people. Not a lot of people know that. It's evil. Margaret Sanger once said, we don't want the word to get out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And then more recently, Hillary Clinton went on to say, I admire Sanger enormously. I admire Margaret Sanger enormously. I am really in awe of her. My, my, my. So is there racism today? Oh, yeah. Yeah and it goes by the name of Planned Parenthood and by other players who disguise themselves as the party of liberation. Amazing evil geniuses to have the agenda that they have but turn it around like they're the party of liberation. It's simply not true. Simply not true. Now, I wanna go a little bit of a different direction with this and let's look at another side of racism. Um, See there are some people, some of which you you see on the screen there, some of the people who believe that white people should be forced to pay reparations, or in other words, financial penalties for the sins of past generations. So white people pay black people a financial penalty for the sins of the white people 200 years ago. Uh, I mean, how is that fair? How is that just? All right, so let's work this out for a second. All right, so someone who has done no wrong to anyone has to pay reparations to someone who has not been wronged by anyone just because of the color of our skin? Folks, that's racism. It's racism. What does the Bible say about such things? Should white people apologize for being white? And should we pay reparations for uh, the sins of past white people? Well, let's see what the Bible says about that. First of all, in Jeremiah 31, verses 29 through 30, it says this In those days, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. And then in Deuteronomy 24, 16, it says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sins. So the idea of reparations is completely unbiblical, completely unjust, and very, very racist. Very racist. So folks, it's unfathomable to me that someone would even think such a thought let alone try to put it in public policy, that people should be forced to pay reparations for something a group of people did 200 years ago. And it doesn't even take into consideration the the unity between races. You know, when I grew up as a little boy, my best friend in elementary school was a black boy. He was my best friend. And then, of course, you know, later on, in our family lives, as I've already told you, uh, my stepfather was black. We dearly loved him. As a matter of fact, my uncle, my mother's brother, when he got remarried, he got remarried to a black woman. So, you know, the, that, that whole reparations thing doesn't even take into consideration the white people who love black people. The skin color makes no difference. You know, underneath this, this top pigment you know, you peel off that top pigment, everyone's pink underneath there. And that's how everyone's flesh is underneath. I mean, we're all one race, folks. Again, what about the many white people over the years who have fought on behalf of black people for their freedom, their equality, and their aid in society? Does that not make a difference? Does that not count? See, the very reason that Blacks are free today is because of the efforts of white people to a large degree. Blacks too, but a lot of white people were involved in that process. See, what we have here is an attempt by a group of elite globalists who have done a very good job of creating racial tension when the racial tension in our society had all but faded away. Mm. See, again, it's interesting that we elected a black president Not once, but twice. And the very person that we elected, Barack Obama, he then started up the racial tension all over again by deeming America a racist society after mostly white people elected him. Which is very, very amazing to me. So on that note... I want to play you another video that talks about white privilege. You're hearing a lot about white privilege these days. So we're going to hear from a a white professor named Jordan Peterson, very, very brilliant guy. Then we're going to hear from a a black individual who's a former police officer in this video.
2: I think the idea of white privilege is absolutely reprehensible. And it's not because white people aren't privileged. (laughs) You know, we have all sorts of privileges. And... Most people have privileges of all sorts, and you should be grateful for your privileges and work to deserve them, I would say. But the the idea that you can target an ethnic group with a collective crime, regardless of the specific innocence or guilt of the constituent elements of that group, there is absolutely nothing that's more racist than that. It's absolutely abhorrent. I can't... Yeah. I mean, that... that if you, if you really want to know more about that sort of thing, you should read about the Kulaks in the, in the Soviet Union in the 1920s, K-U-L-A-K-S, because they were, they were farmers who were very productive. They were the most productive element of the agricultural strata in, in Russia. And they were virtually all killed or raped and robbed by the collectivists who insisted that because they showed signs of wealth, they were criminals and, and, and robbers. So, and one of the consequences of the prosecution of the Kulaks was the death of six million Ukrainians from a famine in the 1930s. The idea of collectively held guilt at the level of the individual as a legal or philosophical principle is dangerous. It's precisely the sort of danger that people who are really looking for trouble would push. So, and, and just a cursory glance at 20th century history should teach anyone who wants to know exactly how how unacceptable that is.
3: Woke white people, I'd like to ask you a favor. Please stop asking for forgiveness for your white privilege. You're not fooling anybody. You're not helping black people or any other minority. And your public confessions don't make you look virtuous. They make you look disingenuous, which is a really nice way of saying fake, phony, and fraudulent. For starters, what is white privilege anyway? Because you're born with white skin, You have all these advantages that I don't have? Like what? Like you can get a mortgage loan that I can't get? Hmm, I got a loan, at a great rate by the way, and I got the house. Why would a banker not give a loan to someone who met the loan requirements? He doesn't want to make money? I've never heard of such a banker. Or how about this? You can enter a store and not be looked upon with suspicion, but I, a black person, cannot? Except, that has never happened to me. But if I was a young dude with my pants hanging down in my butt, I could understand why the store owner would be concerned. I used to be a cop. Believe me, I understand. If I owned the store, I'd be tracking that kid too, whether he was black, white, or anything else. Or what if I had a store that had a history of being shoplifted by young black women and a young black woman with a bad attitude walked in? Would I be suspicious? Yeah, I would. Who wouldn't? I call that common sense, not bigotry. But there's another way of looking at this. In many ways, in today's America, blacks have more privilege than whites. It's been my experience that whites bent over backwards to give blacks every possible advantage. If two people are equally qualified for a job, the black person will usually get it. Big companies and prestigious universities fall all over one another trying to sign up talented black people. If you deny this, you are denying reality, which is what the person who dreamed up this whole thing did. A professor of women's studies at Wellesley College by the name of Peggy McIntosh. She wrote in an article in 1988 about all the white privilege she thought she had. She listed 46, including this one. I can choose bandages and flesh color and have them more or less match my skin. Wow, that's some kind of privilege. Soon others took up the cause. Today, these so-called progressives dominate our colleges and universities, imposing this absurd notion of white privilege on their students. That's too bad because it does nothing good for white students, and it does nothing good for black students. But of the two, ironically, the white students get the better of the deal. Let me explain. To acknowledge your white privilege is supposed to make you feel bad. Only it doesn't. It makes you feel good because by acknowledging your white privilege, you're declaring yourself to be enlightened. And as a virtue bonus, it also makes you a better person than those whites who don't acknowledge their privilege. White privilege, which is supposed to make you feel bad, ends up making you feel good. Meanwhile, the real damage is to blacks. What makes whites feel good makes blacks angry more than 50 years after the civil rights movement, the message is, you're still oppressed. How can this not create a victim mentality? And anyone of any color who sees himself as a victim gets angry. Now I wouldn't deny for a second that there are privileges in life. They're all over the place. There's two parent family privilege, that's huge. There's being lucky to be born in America privilege. There's good gene privilege, but white privilege? Doesn't it depend on the person? Let's take this for example. A black lawyer and his wife have a baby and a meth addict, single white woman has a baby. Which kid has privilege? The white one? Because he's white? Come on now. And here's the kicker. Even if it were true, all those claims about white privilege, so what? Would it change a single thing I did? If white people apologize for being white Is that supposed to help me? In what way? So let's be real. White privilege is an attempt by the left to divide Americans by race. It's all theory and all nonsense. If you wanna fall for it, go ahead. It's a free country, but don't try to sell it to me. I'm an American who deal with my fellow Americans one-on-one. Try it, it works. I'm Brandon Tatum for Prager University.
0: Yeah, that's a good one, huh? So, you know, there are a lot of uh, black Americans out there that are waking up to this who are n- not buying it, who are not accepting it. And we need to be thankful for that and, you know, pray for our black brothers and sisters who bought into this ideology that strips them of their motivation to make something better of themselves. So, I'm coming down home stretch here, but I want to introduce you. Well, I've actually already introduced you to Thomas Sowell. And I want to give you another quote by him. Um, He says that those who promote an ideology of victimhood may imagine that they are helping those at the bottom when in fact they are harming them. By causing them them to see themselves as victims, they strip them of the motivation to rise higher in life, to work hard, and to make something better of themselves. And here's something that I want to say regarding we as Christians, black or white. Or whatever color. We as Christians, folks, regardless of our circumstances or how we were raised, we as Christians are never to play the victim. Did you hear what I said? We as Christians are never to play the victim. Let me give you some biblical proof of that. In Joel 3.10, it says, Let the weak say, I am strong. Now, it didn't say, let the weak say, I am weak. It didn't say, let the sick say, I am sick. It didn't say, let the poor say, I am poor. It said, let the weak say, I am strong. So what that means to us is, is that whatever circumstance that you're in, even if you are fearful, or you you come from the wrong side of the tracks, or you've had some terrible things happen to you over the years, you know what? While those... Did shape your perception of reality to a certain degree, maybe cause you to have emotional issues, whatever. Listen, the Bible says, let the weak say, I am strong. Why? Because it wants you to have a mentality of victory, not a defeatist victim mentality. Because if you have a victim defeatist mentality, you will never get anywhere in your life. You will stay exactly where you are. And you will never grow. So then we must resist the temptation to feel sorry for ourselves. Or to feel entitled. Because neither one of those are ever productive. See, I want to give you an example of that from our Lord Jesus. One time he was telling his disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem... And there in Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the authorities and crucified. And the apostle Peter, feeling very full of himself, pulled Jesus aside and said, Lord, this will never happen to you. And you remember Jesus' response, I hope. He whirled around and and didn't even call Peter by his name. He referred to him as Satan. Satan. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now, why did he say that? Basically, Peter, in so many words, was tempting Jesus to feel sorry for himself. Oh, Jesus, this shall never happen to you. If death and, and crucifixion awaits you in Jerusalem, then let's not go there. Please don't go there. Pity yourself, Jesus. But Jesus was on a mission, and he knew he couldn't think that way. He knew he could not feel sorry for himself and fulfill his mission. I'm going to say that again. Jesus knew that he could not feel sorry for himself and still fulfill his mission. And that's the way that you and I need to think. We need to reject feeling sorry for ourselves. We need to reject that victim mentality and say... I am strong. You may feel weak, but say, I am strong. See, look, folks, the sooner that we can settle in our minds that life isn't fair, the better off we'll be. See, if we feel that life owes us something, that people owe us something because of our disadvantages, we will never amount to anything, we'll never accomplish anything. See, if the Bible teaches us anything, ladies and gentlemen, it's personal responsibility. See, the sin of laziness is condemned by the Bible with a very broad brush. And nowhere does it give any exceptions to that based upon race or background. Right? See, if you have strength in your body, you had better be doing something productive with your hands to provide for yourself and your family, especially if you're a man. Or there's going to be much to answer for someday because that's what God has called us to. All right. I'm going to leave you with one last thought here, and that's this. The answer to this dilemma of Racism, which is literally not so much racism, it's elitism, it's pride. The answer for that, folks, is always love, the love of God. First Thessalonians 3.12 says this, And may the Lord make you to increase and to abound in love toward one another and toward all. Now, the one another part that he's talking about there is in the church. We in the church are to love one another, to be patient with each other, but we're also to love everyone even outside the church of all creeds, of all colors, of all religious backgrounds even. um, You're to love your Catholic and Protestant uh, brethren alike and you know, there's sometimes I can get a little animated about some of the theological weirdness that I see out there sometimes among my brethren, but I have to remind myself these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to see them in heaven someday. Yeah, we don't, may not agree on this particular theological issue, but that's my brother. That's my sister in Christ. As long as we agree on the centrality of the doctrines of our faith, then hey, we're brothers in Christ and sisters. Amen. So let's not respond folks, to racism with more racism. Let's not respond to hate with more hate. See, the only thing powerful enough to overcome either one of those things is the love of God. And I'm going to give you a a quote by Martin Luther King right now as we close. And of course, you know, Martin Luther King, um, he paid the ultimate price for doing what he did in helping to reform our society where uh, the way that blacks were treated up until the nineteen sixties or so and he was very outspoken a very charismatic republican christian preacher and it did eventually cost him his life because he was taken out by an by an assassin's bullet and i want to show you what he said Uh, he got death threats long before that people some some people hated him for what he was doing. And he got, him and his family got death threats all the time, but he just pushed on. Uh, And by the way, if you want a little piece of history, um, I have in my possession, this belongs to me, it was passed down to me by my mother, Life Magazine from 1968. This is a real, authentic, original 1968 Life Magazine with um, Martin Luther King's widow pictured there at her husband's funeral. And uh, you can see that our our country was already making great progress along these lines. If you read through some of these stories and uh, how horrible that that was and it was appropriately portrayed as such in Life Magazine. So I had this up here. If you want to take a look at it, I'm going to have it right up here on the podium right here on the bottom shelf there of the podium. You're welcome to come up and look through it if you just want a little walk through history. uh, I will ask you to be careful because it's very old and the binding is a little weak. But I want to show you and end with this right here what Martin Luther King uh, once said about how we are to address hatred in our culture, and racism in our culture. And we're going to end with this, and then we're going to pray. He said this, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So I know that there's a lot of racial tension in our culture today that's been stirred up for political reasons. But folks, I'm going to ask you, don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. Even by people... I've been um, confronted on two different occasions by young black men who um, were threatening to do me harm. One guy had a gun and was threatening to do me harm because I'm white, I'm older, and I drive a nice car. And that, those three combinations to a lot of these brainwashed black people is the kiss of death. I mean, you are like... And one guy called me the great Satan. I was at a gas station. And uh, I got into the gas station, the pump, before he did. And he read me the riot act. And um, called me the great Satan and, and all kinds of stuff. Just because I drive a nice car and I'm white and I'm older. So that, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the left is pushing. Oh, all of our problems are based on older white men. You know, the people that are well off. Don't take the bait on that. Don't take the bait. That's, that's, it's tempting you to, to have strong, negative feelings toward black people. And I had to wrestle with that, honestly, because a lot of what I've been seeing in the culture right now has, has tempted me to be angry, even though in my lifetime I love black people. But I've gotten to the point now where because all the stuff that's going on, I've had to wrestle with just <clears throat> not having those negative feelings that are starting to come up in my heart, which is by design. It's by satanic design Um, To to divide the races again and cause all kinds of division and turmoil in our culture. Don't take that bait. Don't take the bait. Your your black brothers and sisters, Asians, Hispanics, they're our brethren. They're people that are on this earth that we share the earth with. We're all one race. Now, our little pockets of cultures are different. We live a little bit differently than one another. But we're all the same race, folks. Can we say amen to that? Yeah. Stand up and let's pray.